You're listening to On Shifting Ground from World Affairs and KQED. I'm Ray Suarez. The Year in Review is a time-honored institution in the news business, and why not? It helps people take stock before the changing of the year. It reminds listeners, viewers, readers just how full the 52 weeks just passed have been. And believe me, I haven't worked in a newsroom yet where we sat around at the end of the year looking at each other and wondering what to put in the program. It gives news audiences a chance to check their impressions of what they've just lived through with people who think about this stuff for a living. And no surprise, 2023 was packed with events worthy of worry, shock, surprise, worth recalling before that old guy with the long beard exits stage left, as we welcome in that baby stage right, draped, for modesty's sake, in a sash marked 2024. Russia continues to prosecute its costly war with Ukraine, and may be feeling a little bit more confident it can wait out an exhausted West, while President Putin announces his re-election bid. China is throwing its weight around in the South China Sea, cementing friendships in an emerging coalition, straddling the hemispheres as Xi Jinping consolidates power, even while the economy, at least by Chinese standards, sags. A Chinese balloon crossed the U.S. from coast to coast before it was shot down by the United States. October brought the bloody incursion from the Gaza Strip into Israel proper by Hamas gunmen and the ongoing massive retaliation from Israel that has upended international relations. Glittering Dubai, built by fossil fuel money, was the setting for this year's climate conference. The world appears unready to go all in on curbing emissions, even after a year of scorching temperatures and climate-based catastrophe. Since grabbing the majority in one chamber of Congress, Republicans changed the international tone in Washington and now have Brussels, Kyiv, and Moscow watching for the signs of the U.S. backing off strong Biden support of Ukraine's defense. Evgeny Prigozhin led a column of mutineers north from the Ukrainian border toward Moscow before slamming on the brakes, only to board a jet a few weeks later that plummeted to Earth, leaving mysteries scattered like smashed parts at the crash site. Rookie politician Javier Millet is the new president of Argentina. Lula returned to power at the beginning of the year in Brazil, while Bolsonaro supporters stormed government buildings. Gert Wilders' right-wing party stormed to victory in the Netherlands, while Donald Tusk's coalition snatched back power from conservatives in Poland. The Roman god Janus looks back and looks ahead. We'll do much the same this hour. I'm joined by Luke Harding, a foreign correspondent for The Guardian. Welcome back to the program, Luke. Great to be with you again, Ray. Yeah, what a year. What a year. Jessica Chen Weiss is the Michael J. Zak Professor for China and Asia-Pacific Studies in the Department of Government at Cornell. She's the author of Powerful Patriots, Nationalist Protest in China's Foreign Relations. Professor, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. And Karim El-Gendi is an urban sustainability and climate consultant based in London. He's a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute, an associate fellow at Chatham House, and the founder of Carboon, an advocacy initiative promoting sustainability in the cities of the Middle East and North Africa. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, the pieces of this year are so intricately connected. It's not like you can easily tease out the Middle East from Russia, from China, from energy prices, from food prices, from shifting alliances. But we're going to try. Luke Harding, how does the world look from Ukraine? Well, Ray, I spent today just outside Avdiivka, which is this ruined town in the east of Ukraine that the Russians have been trying to seize. Well, they've been trying for about 10 years to seize it ever since 2014, when Putin stole covertly a whole chunk of the east of the country. But they've been trying in particular since October the 10th with massive tank attacks, drones, aviation. And latterly, according to the commanders I talked to today, they've been sending in small groups of infantry guys to try and infiltrate into kind of Ukrainian positions. And what's happening is that there is a landscape where I am of bodies, Russian bodies heaped up across the snow. And the Ukrainian commanders I speak to say, for now, they can hold on. 
and the Russians are advancing at huge cost, the, the, the question is for how much longer? And really, the answer to that question depends on the international coalition that's been supporting Ukraine, Kiev, Volodymyr Zelensky since full-scale invasion in February of 2022. And everybody is looking nervously to Washington, to Congress, to Capitol Hill to see what happens. Because I think if America pulls the plug on military aid to Ukraine, then the Ukrainian soldiers I've been speaking to say they're going to struggle. Already they're seeing ammunition reducing the Russians, they say, have got five, ten times more than they have. They've got more everything. And it's not just about, you know, this town where I was today. It's really, to my mind, it's about the future of the 21st century. It's about self-determination, sovereignty, borders. And frankly, if Russia prevails, and, and Putin is looking increasingly happy about the way things are going globally, particularly in America, then I think we are in a very dangerous Hobbesian place where any state, whether it's Venezuela or China with Taiwan or a successful Russia, then looking next to the Baltics or Poland or Moldova, where big countries can gobble up small countries. And we're, we're back in the sort of nihilistic imperial or neo-imperial world of the 19th century. I think this is a very dangerous place. And I think this year and next year is kind of an inflection point. Which way do we go? Can we hold the line? Can we actually be states that believe in, in the rule of law? Or, or are we just going to be in this kind of anarchic playground where any actor can do, frankly, whatever they want? President Zelensky headed to Argentina, interestingly, for a meeting with the new president there. And on his way back, stopped in Washington. Is the charm offensive now a thing of the past and now Volodymyr Zelensky is sort of scrambling to keep the aid flowing because this is really the whole game at this point. I think it is the whole game. Actually, Volodymyr Zelensky, I mean, I've been following him pretty closely. I was in Kiev when the full-scale invasion started and saw him many times at press conferences. I still think, despite his current difficulties, <clears throat> he is the preeminent politician of 2023. I think he has an ability to make a case, to tell a story, to make an emotional appeal, both to politicians and to kind of ordinary people like no one else. He can also, Ray, he can also use an iPhone in a competent way. How many senior politicians can use an iPhone convincingly? He's one of very few. And I think his outreach is more essential than ever. As you were saying in your introduction, it's not just in America where, where Ukraine has problems. What we've seen in Europe, in, in my neighborhood, the rise of populist politicians in, in the Netherlands, in Slovakia, where there's a pro-Russian president. There's a, a spoiler in the form of Viktor Orban, the Hungarian president, who seems to be kind of vetoing any attempt to help Ukraine and conspiring with pro-Trump uh, Republicans as well. He was recently in Washington, too. And... I keep wondering, what is the year that this sort of nationalist populism where men with outrageous haircuts can make grandiose promises and reduce complex problems to very simple solutions for how much longer can they win elections? Is this our epoch? Is this our era? Or is this a blip? I don't know. But the more populists that win, the worse it is for Ukraine and its prospects of survival. Karim El-Gindi, the year closes with the conference of the parties, more familiarly called COP, and it's in the Persian Gulf this year, which is an interesting place for it to be. But I'm wondering whether that part of the world can even keep its mind on the questions of sustainability, of energy prices, of energy supply, of an energy future, while there's a hot war going on in Gaza and Israel. Sure. Well, so far, the COP28 presidency has done quite well in uh, staving off the long shadow of the war over the negotiations. It wasn't entirely unscathed, if you like, by the war, and I can elaborate that. But the impact on energy prices, while initially anticipated and was the worst case scenario that could come out of it, because it would have derailed climate action and bring energy security further to the forefront of the conversations as we experienced in the first uh, few months of the Ukraine war. But the other impacts were very clear. So, for example, looking at the region, the Middle East and North Africa region, we saw the obvious demise of climate collaboration between Israel on one side and the Arab countries, both the new, those who established new relationships with Israel under the Abraham Accords or the old allies of Israel or those who have normalized relationships with Israel, such as Egypt and Jordan, which have done so decades before. 
So the collaboration around climate, which have been built to be uh, one way of bridge building between these two sides, seem to have died a death, especially given that Jordan has cancelled the flagship proposal between Israel and Jordan, where Jordan was going to sell renewable energy electricity directly to Israel, and Israel would, in return, provide Jordan with water in what was known as energy for water. All of that would have been partially funded by the United Arab Emirates, which offered to support Jordan in building the solar array. So in a way, the climate collaboration seems to have died a death because of what has happened on the 7th of October and the following weeks. And then the other aspect that came out of this conflict is it has exposed a certain level of incoherence in how parts of the world support this region, especially within Israel-Palestine, in terms of their foreign policy and the climate policy, their aid policy, their development policy. There was some concern with amongst those at the COP28 and how countries such as Germany, for example, would provide 90 million euros to Gaza for powering a new desalination plant or a water treatment plant in Gaza that was only opened earlier this year, only for Israel to destroy it after the hostilities broke out in October. And Germany would not really be able to call for a ceasefire, despite the fact that its own investment, its own support, its own contribution to climate resilience and the welfare of the people of Gaza has been directly hit. There are some other examples of that sort in terms of how many solar panels have been destroyed and many of which were provided as aid by Western nations. The other way in which that has also affected the negotiations is increased this polarization. There is an ongoing rift between developing nations and developing nations that has been around for 20 years or so. It has been made deeper during the Ukraine war, and it has been made even deeper with the Gaza war, where there's some lack of trust across the divide between developing and developed nations, and also it has led to some distraction in the run-up to the COP, simply because diplomats have only limited bandwidth and they were busy looking at the war rather than looking at how to build consensus around critical issues such as phasing out fossil fuels, such as adaptation, such as finance, and such as loss and damage. The other element is how some within the COP negotiations have felt that multilateralism doesn't seem to extend beyond this process. So multilateralism is a core tenet to the COP process, simply because of its very nature. It's a multilateral negotiation. But unfortunately, they had seen that calls for ceasefire were blocked by a limited number of countries. And as a result, they felt that this multilateralism, while it manifests itself to a certain degree in certain parts of the international order, and it makes it made some wonder as to whether calls for climate justice were consistent with acceptance, the, with the hostilities continuing, I'm not calling for a ceasefire. And the final aspect is a, a concern among some as to what this war could do in terms of its impact on the United States' own climate action and what it could do in terms of alienating the progressive faction part of the Democratic Party, simply because President Biden has refused to call for a ceasefire and also questioned the numbers of those who died during the conflict on the Palestinian side. And that might have alienated some. And according to the polls, it looks like the odds of a second Trump presidency are not to be ignored. And if that happens, those in the climate world would really have a major problem on their hands simply because that could lead to a second withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. It could lead to a diversion of funds under the Inflation Reduction Act, away from renewable energy projects, away from electric vehicles, away from hydrogen, away from all the new technologies that were lower in carbon that the U.S. has been pushing for, that President Biden has been pushing for under that particular piece of legislation. And instead, you might get this money being diverted to uh, fossil fuels, as we, and we've heard as much from former President Trump during his own uh, remarks on the matter. So th if that happens, then uh, that's 13% of the global emissions moving away, moving in the wrong direction. And given the way in which the United States and China have been in lockstep, making sure that none of them are disadvantaged, or at least ensuring that, that they're not going faster than the other party is going, that could also lead to slowing down in climate action on the Chinese part, which would add up to about half of the global emissions. So the United States and China slowing down reducing their efforts even marginally would ensure that we have no chance of 
limiting global warming to one and a half degrees. Jessica Chen Weiss, I'm getting to you last, not by accident, but because so many of the things we've talked about thus far have storylines that move through China. China was really an essential nation in the global story of 2023, wasn't it? It sure was. So the G2 met a little earlier this year, President Biden and President Xi at the APEC meeting in San Francisco. It didn't tamp down all the little fires that exist in the bilateral relationship, did it? No, but it did start to put that floor under the relationship that I think many were hoping. And so we will see how robust that is to what's to come in 2024. So do we end the year in a better place than we were at the beginning? I certainly think we are. Following that high-level summit, we have seen indications that the United States and China might move toward a a missile launch notification plan, other types of uh, continued progress on the crackdown on fentanyl precursor chemicals, again, um, sort of an agreement to work together on methane and plastic pollution, these kinds of things that are going to be necessary if we're going to avoid and reduce the risk of a a conflict and, and tackle shared challenges. Has the willingness to continue to throw an arm around Vladimir Putin, throw him a lifeline in some senses, has that paid off for China? It's been a mixed bag. It certainly has been a key source of concern, both in the United States and particularly in Europe, that China continues to be a key source of dual-use technology that's allowed Russia to kind of regroup and, and rebuild despite its poor battlefield performance. At the same time, I think that China, under the Xi Jinping leadership, continues to judge that Russia is China's most valuable strategic partner in resisting what Xi Jinping has previously called U.S. encirclement, suppression, and containment. That may be a little bit less stark right now, but I think the long-term bet that this partnership will stand China in good stead, as certainly as insurance, if not leverage, I think remains in place. Well, there's been movement toward remilitarization in Japan. There's been a tightening of the South Korea-U.S. bilateral. Uh, North Korea has begun to supply Russia with weapons in its war with Ukraine. The chess pieces continue to move even as the front remains stalled in eastern Ukraine. Has China used this time while the world is distracted in so many ways, to take care of its own interests in East Asia. China has been quite calculating in in terms of trying to demonstrate that its interest won't be trampled upon, but that that's actually led to the kind of growing suspicion around the region that isn't necessarily been to the betterment of Chinese interests. And if anything, you have seen a bit of a recalibration, it seems, in China's outward diplomatic push to reassure the world that China seeks stability, seeks to welcome back foreign investors, will not turn the other cheek if provoked, but nonetheless is not looking to start a destabilizing conflict or confrontation. And I think on on both Ukraine and on Israel-Gaza, I think that China has seen that there is actually a, quite a large reservoir of a sentiment across the developing world that it feels quite resentful at the way things have been structured and ordered under U.S. leadership and has, to some extent, taken advantage of it while trying to also straddle not getting too far on the wrong side either of both the United States and Europe, keeping open the possibility that China could play at some point in the future a constructive role after the fighting parties have exhausted themselves. China watches the U.S. very closely. And I wonder whether there are people inside the upper reaches of government who listen to something like the recent Republican primary debate, or all of them really, since the series began earlier this year, and hear in the tone of that Republican debate a blistering anti-Chinese sentiment that makes them worry about a Republican victory in the United States in 2024? Are they handicapping that race inside the foreign ministry in China? 
I certainly think that the outcome of the U.S. presidential election will be very consequential for American foreign policy, and I think that decision makers and analysts in Beijing recognize that. They do very much pay attention to what is said both by sitting officials as well as aspiring candidates for office in the United States. And while they recognize that campaign rhetoric is not the same thing as policy, it does provide the broader context in which policymakers shape policy and take office. And so one of the major fears that the Chinese Communist Party leadership has is that the United States will never accept China as a legitimate power on the world stage and will seek to, at every turn, subvert one-party rule. And I think that kind of rhetoric is most obviously on display outside of the U.S. administration. The Biden administration has said that it does not seek to transform China and is more or less prepared to compete but also coexist. But outside of the administration, of course, you can hear all manner of different ideas about treating the CCP as the you know, United States' greatest enemy. And as a result, I, I think that they watch carefully to see whether or not that kind of rhetoric will gain steam as the election season heats up. But I think also that's only one side of the story. I do think that the, the question of whether we have a Republican particularly a Trump presidency, will affect American standing in the world, too, and the the vibrancy of American alliances and partnerships. So it's not all, I think, in one direction, but certainly I think a Chinese leadership that seeks greater stability on the global stage, particularly given China's own domestic troubles, is quite concerned about a much more destabilizing or confrontational and chaotic presidency if that's where the U.S. election heads. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that word stability. Here in Washington, it's discussed as a given almost that Vladimir Putin would prefer Donald Trump back in the White House. Could it also be assumed that given Biden's repeated assertions that the United States would prefer coexistence, does not seek regime change in Beijing, understands that China has its own interests, while at the same time being less and less ambivalent about a willingness to stick up for Taiwan. Is stability such an interest in Beijing that uh, members of the Politburo might be happy to see Joe Biden on the west front of the Capitol in January 2025 taking another oath of office? I think that the Chinese government became very concerned toward the end of the Trump administration about the range of policies as well as really potentially dangerous activities in the South China Sea that led to some high-level communications about the possibility of a quote-unquote October surprise. Um, And so although, again, I think that the Chinese government might see some upside in a more America alone version of U.S. foreign policy, I think that they also very much worry about what that might mean also for Chinese interests in terms of the range of policies that the a future U.S. government might take under a more isolationist but also erratic American president. And that may not be in China's interests. Of course, we all hope that regardless of their preferences, they stay well away from American elections. But in this case, I think that there really is no clear answer to which would be on net benefit preferred by the Chinese side. You're listening to On Shifting Ground, produced by World Affairs in San Francisco. After the break, from the Middle East to China, how the climate change conversation is shaping foreign policy. If you missed any part of this episode or want to catch up on other international stories, download our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Luke Harding, more than once, as I've covered stories around the world, people have approached me, especially when it's around election time and the world's a little bit more aware of what's going on domestically in the United States, and said, you know, we should get a vote (laughs) because it really matters to us who the president of the United States is. I wonder if, if this, what's shaping up in 2024... And given the recent past performance of the American president, whether the world feels that even more acutely in 2023, that it really matters who the president of the United States is to them in their countries. I can put this bluntly in two words, Ray. We're terrified. 
We're terrified. We all survived the kind of Trump presidency. I mean, looking on aghast and with wonderment as extraordinary surreal things happen, like the storming of the Capitol. It's pretty clear who Vladimir Putin wants to win, and that's Donald Trump. I mean, I wrote a book a few years ago called Collusion, How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win. And that really was the case. Sweeping and systematic is how Mueller put it, an attempt by the Russians to influence the outcome of an American election. And one thing I can, can quite confidently predict now is that the Russians will try and do the same thing again next time around. I mean, in the informational sphere, when it comes to espionage, regardless of whether you think that, that Trump is a Russian asset, witting or unwitting, or whether he's been unreasonably accused and it's all a hoax, the Russians will try and discredit and undermine Joe Biden and promote Donald Trump. And there seems to be this, from where I stand, there seems to be this kind of strange symbiosis between pro-Trump Republicans, that what you might call the Tucker Carlson faction, and Moscow where Tucker is repeating Kremlin talking points. I, I find it very strange, and I wonder what Ronald Reagan, remember him, what he would be thinking of what's happened to his party, because it seems the idea that they're anti-Ukrainian and pro-Moscow, when, frankly, Vladimir Putin wants the destruction of the US, he wants chaos, he wants to sabotage and undermine American democracy and American's global leadership role. Why you would ally with him, I find bewildering. For very many people, the, the election next year is going to be extremely consequential for Ukraine first and foremost, but also for other countries as well. We just have to see what happens. And yes, I wish I could vote. We all wish we could vote. Kareem, let me ask you a version of the same question, because Joe Biden has been more vocal than Donald Trump was about internal policies in the part of the world that you watch, the Middle East and North Africa. He has been much more willing to be an activist when it comes to uh, moving energy around the globe and making sure people get what they need at a price they can pay. He has pressured the Saudis from time to time. He has been a forthright supporter of Israel yet also uh, has joined in or rejoined the Paris Accords after Donald Trump pulled the United States out. A mixed bag for politicians anywhere from uh, Casablanca to Baghdad? Absolutely. I mean, and this is what makes it so difficult. Looking at this mixed bag, would you then weigh in that that's not as good as was anticipated? Or would you look at the alternative? The concern here, especially from a climate perspective is that the alternative to this mixed bag is absolutely detrimental and not just to the US, specifically the rest of the world, those who are most at risk from climate change, the low-lying islands, the most vulnerable nations of the world, and those who are particularly at risk from climate refugees. So those to where climate refugees will move. And this is in the long term indeed, but it is certainly on the minds of most who observe climate processes as such, that the impacts in Africa and parts of Asia could end up leading to mass migration. We shouldn't make any mistake about this. What we are talking here is certain parts of the world becoming uninhabitable in the long term. And as a result, those who live there will end up moving somewhere else. And what we are trying to do here is minimize that damage. So such migration does not happen. The risks that we face are as acute as locking in a future that is much difficult for all of us by the end of this decade and to which our actions would be minimal going forward in the um, coming decades. Is climate policy and foreign policy carried on in these countries in the Middle East and North Africa on two separate tracks? Are we able to cross the boundaries between those two issues easily and effectively? Because you've got major energy exporting states looking away from the United States, currying favor in other places in the world, while at the same time, it's the United States that is trying to put the brakes on in a world of rising emissions. Those things are often talked about almost as if they inhabit two different universes. When Mohammed bin Salman travels from Riyadh to meet President Putin, yes, there is obviously energy and fossil fuel policy at stake there, but it's also seen in geopolitical terms and strategic terms as well. Do uh, the leaders in all those countries, that great arc of countries, 
look at these as separate issues or issues that have to speak to each other? Oh, they absolutely do. What has happened is countries in this region, especially energy exporters, have realized that the world is going to leave them behind sooner or later. So they're no longer delaying this or trying to make sure that never happens. Instead, what they've decided is to jump on the bandwagon with a new idea of how that should be done and try and grab the steering wheel. And that process in which they try to engage in climate action has resulted in the debates that we're having Today, as we speak at COP28, where there is negotiations over whether it is emissions from fossil fuel that we should be battling against or the actual fossil fuels that we should be battling against. And it only takes a certain level of nuance for you to be able to engage to that level of uh, sophistication and detail in those negotiations. And energy transition itself is a remaking of the global economy. So if you look at those negotiations that are happening every year for the last 30 years, they are not an environmental issue. They are a restructuring of the world we live in in order to respond to climate risks and at the same time determine who would be the winners and the losers in this process. And if you are an exporter of fossil fuels, then it is your future at stake and you need to, one, ensure that you will be able to transition away from this and that they'll be able to do that in a way that is uninterrupted. Let me put this this way. If, if Saudi Arabia, as it, in its current efforts, aims to decarbonize internally, because many Gulf countries are trying to decarbonize their economies and turn to renewables internally and export every barrel, every molecule of natural gas externally, they need to be able to use that revenue to diversify their economies into more sectors that are not more rentier sectors that are not dependent on those sales, but that are ones that are more diversified. So industries, tourism, agriculture, culture, sports, you name it. And for them to be able to do this fully, they need to sell as much as possible of this fossil fuel and rebuild their economies as fast as possible. Because if they're caught halfway through and the world no longer needs that fossil fuel that they're selling, then they're neither here nor there. And there will basically be a failed state. So in a way, it's a very critical moment for them. And it's what the world is doing in moving away from fossil fuels cannot just be seen as an environmental climate issue. It's absolutely central, critical to their economies and their future going forward. Professor uh, Chen Weiss, I uh, was living in China for much of last year. And what I saw was a country that was on its way to being the greenest country on the planet and the dirtiest country on the planet at the same time. It almost was like a whiplash moment often where you knew that it was essential to keep on digging coal and keep on burning it to make electricity and keep on importing oil and building solar panels and building windmills and building new transmission systems and building transportation systems that were cleaner. Both things were true at the same time, which gives China a kind of interesting profile on the world stage when it comes to this issue, doesn't it? You put your finger on it. That juxtaposition is incredible, isn't it? It it really, because you can't really say anything in the final analysis about China because they are both of those places at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. My colleague Jeremy Wallace says they are neither the, the climate savior nor the climate villain. They're both. <laughs> so, so what do you do now? I mean, I, they are um, taking advantage of the America-imposed cap by not quite paying Russia the world price for oil. And they are very clear that they are going to keep on doing the things they need to do to power their industrial growth. But they look, they also, one out of every five or six people on the planet is Chinese, and they have an interest in a livable place in 2050 and 2062. Yeah, absolutely. The scale at which they're building renewables is incredible, and, and it could be to the benefit of those around the world who want to decarbonize at an affordable cost. But it's also complicated by concerns about the kind of distribution of the benefits and who will be leaders in the next generation of renewable technologies. And so we're seeing already concerns here that there may be trade-offs really hard trade-offs between how quickly can we collectively decarbonize and are we going to have industries in, in Europe and the United States that are continue to be viable in, the, in those sectors? And how much are we going to allow the participation of Chinese firms or Chinese technology 
in, for example, the creation of renewable energy like that here in the United States, which creates jobs. And so it's a very thorny thicket to navigate here. But I think it's a, as you said, it's really important rather than seeing China as only the bad guy or only the good guy in this to recognize that there are areas where we're going to, out of necessity, have to work together, but in the areas where we also want to ensure that the incentives are ones that don't reward bad behavior. And so straddling that is is a tricky policy challenge, but nonetheless an essential one. Luke Harding, the game seems totally different if you're sitting in the Kremlin. Fair to say? Yeah, I mean, the Kremlin, the problem is when you talk about it, it all sounds a bit kind of crazy if you apply, Ray, your logical Cartesian mind to it. But essentially, I think what we haven't discussed today, but it's worth stressing, is that Russia or Putin, let's say, and the kind of ruling sort of KGB security kind of elite, that they believe that they're engaged in the forever war. For now, the theater is Ukraine, but essentially they see this as a sort of almost a metaphysical struggle against the West in general and America in particular. I spent a long time in Moscow, I was there for four years until I was kicked out, is a prioristic. In America, as in the Cold War, is what the Russians call the Glavny Protivnik, the chief adversary. And that won't change regardless of what happens where I am in Ukraine, whether it's a long war, I think it is going to be a long war, or not. So long as Putin is there, he will have a absolutely conflict-driven relationship with Washington. For now, his project is definitely Europe. It's about reshaping Europe. It's about reconstituting the Russian Empire in some form, regaining the sort of spheres of influence that the Soviet Union once had in, in Eastern Europe and Central Europe. That much is clear. But essentially, for him, it's also a battle for supremacy. I mean, it's quite often the way the Russian diplomats talk about it is that the language is rather technical. They talk about opposing unipolarity having a multipolar world, that basically means sticking it to you guys. That's what that's all about. And Russia becoming a kind of anti-pole to American hegemony and attracting support from the global south, from the unwanted countries like Iran and North Korea. Obviously, Jessica was saying very kind of articulately about the relationship with China, but becoming a sort of a superpower again, really. I mean, as Putin sees it, there are two superpowers in the world, really. And the relationship with China, I think, is primarily pragmatic. But he sees America as a rival, as an adversary, as someone that he has to try and undermine and destroy. Is 2023, Luke, a year when that coalescing collection of states really tightened their bond to each other, North Korea, Iran, and others, who were might have been on the outs in many global contexts, but now have almost an organizing principle. Definitely, Ray. I mean, I, look, in Avdiivka, the Ukrainian soldiers I was talking to say they are facing off against kamikaze drones made in Iran. They are being bombed with quite often unreliable artillery shells from North Korea. And a lot of the technology in the Russian weaponry is from China. All of these allies, it's not just about warm diplomatic words and handshakes, that they're contributing material, they're contributing useful stuff, Russia's battlefield adventures or misadventures. And your program is known for its calmness, its reason, its fine analysis. So I would hate to go into the realm of what people here call conspirology or uh, conspiratorial thinking. But the big Russian push um, on eastern Ukraine happened just after Hamas's attack on Israel, within a couple of days. And I can't prove this. I would be amazed if he was taken by surprise. I imagine he knew something of this kind was coming. And isn't crying any tears over it either is inviting Hamas delegations to Moscow. For him, this is a great masterstroke. I mean, I'm not saying that he orchestrated it, but he's certainly a beneficiary because world attention has shifted to Israel-Gaza. It's taking all the bandwidth. It's polarizing opinion. It's making us all shout at each other again. And he's the beneficiary because all the oxygen is there. Putin, for now, I think pretty certain he thinks he is prevailing. His nihilistic version of the world is going to win. And our soppy, rules-based, liberal, hypocritical, as he would see it, version is heading into the dustbin of history. You're listening to On Shifting Ground, produced by World Affairs in San Francisco. After the break, what does the ugly escalation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict mean for the world's climate goals? And how is Xi Jinping getting his house in order for 2024. 
If you missed any part of this episode or want to catch up on other international stories, download our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Kareem El-Gendi, I know that you're a climate guy, but you are also a close observer of the region. Did October 7th just sort of scramble a lot of things that were either on their way to fruition or lines of communication and openness that were starting to tighten? Were there convergences, whether it's the detente between uh, Riyadh and Tehran, uh, whether it was uh, talk in the wind of a more normal relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel, uh, whether it was, as you mentioned briefly earlier, the Abraham Accords and their consequences, was it all just thrown into chaos by the Hamas attack? Absolutely. I think all of it, the emerging dynamics that we'd experienced in the region over the last year, where some were wondering, do Palestinians matter anymore? I think that has been thrown out of the window. The emerging potential for a normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, I think that has been dealt a blow to what extent, we don't know. There is quite public concerns by those who have signed up to the Abraham Accords that this was an embarrassment to them and that perhaps some of the projects, some of the movements towards strengthening this and more concrete moves such as additional projects, additional collaboration, overt relationships seems to have slowed down a little bit. Just one example, again, from the climate world, the Israeli delegation was meant to be a thousand strong, which would have made it amongst the largest delegations ever by any country to any conference of the parties, but ended up being 50 strong. Just to show you the scale of how, how much that has been scaled back. Of course, Many Israelis naturally are reservists, so they would be not available for traveling. But overall, it shows the level to which this has become a liability. Some have expressed concerns about their own welfare being in the UAE, despite no evidence to the contrary. But it just shows the concern on both sides. Uh, there's extremely high levels of tension within everyone who is at the COP. Just, I use that as an example uh, because there were a number of nationalities on display, uh, Latin Americans feeling very strongly about the matter, obviously people from the region feeling strongly about the matters. To give an anecdote here, there was too many people with kofiyas that were not Palestinians on display. Now, to go back to the geopolitical landscape, I don't know how many years we would need to get back to the point we were at before the 7th of October, and I think it will be a very long time. Where does China fit in all this, Professor? This has normally not been thought to be an area of uh, critical concern or an area where China had much juice. Has its place in the world changed in such a way that now the leader of the Chinese people is considered an essential statesman at a time of international conflict? I think that most would say that China's leadership has been relatively opportunistic when there have been movements in the diplomatic world. China has been happy to help uh, set the table to bring previously estranged parties together. But I don't know that anybody thinks that it was a lot of juice that China had to put into making those things happen. And so they've been, I think, in both of these conflicts, but particularly on Israel-Gaza, I think, happy to see the United States relatively isolated on the question and making the most of that, while at the same time, I think, putting forward a principled position or that they see as being principled, which is to stand on the side of peace and the longer-term potential diplomatic solution, which they aren't necessarily going to play a big role in creating, but nonetheless will, once it becomes more ripe, might be interested in helping facilitate. So the equivalent of Antony Blinken isn't going to be shuttling between capitals trying to sew up the details of a ceasefire, let's say. Exactly. Is it clear who the equivalent is of Anthony Blinken? <laughs> There's been some, uh, some tumult at the top of Chinese foreign policy circles in recent weeks. There sure has been. And I think it also, again, reflects the kind of ongoing inner tumult that Xi Jinping is trying to get out ahead of 
trying to clean house and get China in better shape economically, politically, ideologically for what he perceives as potential storms and troubles to come. If starting in 2022, but continuing in 2023 and possibly into 24, Chinese economics underperform, does that give Xi domestic troubles and challenges that we and the rest of the world are not taking full account of? We certainly, I think, are taking account of the slowing of the Chinese economy. I think probably predictions of its collapse are certainly overdone. China is likely to muddle through as it has at some rate of growth slower than they perhaps would like or even announce. But nonetheless, I think that this is part of why we have seen over the past several years under Xi Jinping an effort to instill not just a belief in the pace of growth, but the quality of growth and a whole variety of other objectives besides rapid economic development. So we're likely to see that kind of a insistence continue, even as I think he and the CCP leadership are going through what seem to be the motions of some of the hard economic changes in policy that would stimulate growth once again. But we're not likely to return to the days of yore where that was the primary metric by which the CCP claimed it was legitimate. Absent conflict in the Middle East, would China's assertiveness in the South China Sea be getting more international attention? I think it would be, certainly. Things are pretty dicey, both between China and the Philippines, as well as between China and U.S. reconnaissance operations in the area, with Chinese pilots and operators behaving increasingly in unsafe ways that the U.S. has raised uh, again and again, and may have, in fact, been related to China's willingness to resume military-to-military communications after the recent summit in San Francisco. Those remain, I hope, at a low simmer, but it's certainly the risk of an unexpected incident or accident that provokes a crisis has certainly risen and is something that I think we should all be keeping our eye on, if not also being supportive of the efforts to reduce potential for miscommunication between the United States and China as they try to stabilize the relationship. Well, Luke earlier in the program was uh, feeling a little risky about sounding like he had his hair on fire in the South China Sea, where U.S. military and commercial vessels continue to insist on, assert the right of free passage through international waters, what China now says are its territorial waters. Is there the risk of a mistake that could add up to something much, much bigger? I certainly think that there is. I don't think that such an escalation would be intended, but the pattern of harassment, I think, is intended to send a signal that the United States operations there will not be cost or risk-free, and that this is really, in China's view, the only measure that they can take separate from rhetoric and angry indignation to say that the United States needs to take seriously China's concerns. Unfortunately, that adds up to a, a quite dangerous picture. To close the program, I'd like to get a look ahead from all three of you guests. First, Luke Harding. We are coming up to the dead of winter in Ukraine, a tough time to fight in that part of the world, and, of course, a 2024 that's filled with risks for both Russia and Ukraine. What do you see? I see more of the same. I mean, I think that the Ukrainian counterattack, which began in the summer of 2023, that stopped. So uh, across the front line, the Ukrainians are now defending and the Russians are attacking. So I'd say the strategic initiative with Russia is with Russia, but Russia can nibble away. They may take Avdiivka, they may take some more territory in the east, but I don't think there's going to be a strategic breakthrough. And meanwhile, I think Putin's strategy will continue to try and wait for Trump and sit out the West. And if he doesn't win this year, then he'll win next year. He's basically banking on a very long war. And the the question is, what do the Allies do? Do do the Europeans, do the Americans step up or do they fade away, leave Ukraine to its fate. And if Trump comes back, then I think America's out of NATO. And if I were in the Baltic states, I would be very nervous indeed as to what Putin might do next, because I think he regards that as unfinished business. Kareem El-Gendi, is the continued fidelity to the 1.5C climate increase limit now more sentimental than anything else? Coming out of the COP, can the world still get its act together? And stop at one and a half degrees? 
Well, this year we're expected to experience an annual temperature that is 1.46 degrees uh, Celsius above pre-industrialization. So for this year, we're almost at 1.5 for a year. Of course, the Paris Agreement mandates that for the long term. In other words, a 30-year average. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting very close. Next year, we're most likely will exceed 1.5. So for the coming year, we're expecting to see the combined impact of both climate change as well as the rest of the El Nino year uh, lead to unprecedented climate. And that's the given at this point, just given how we had seen the progression over 2023. And at the same time, we're seeing another year of the can being kicked down the road, just like we had had last year at Sharm Sheikh in COP27. This year looks like it's another year of watered-down language about fossil fuels. Next year, we're expected to see that in Baku, which is the host for the upcoming negotiations in Azerbaijan. Baku, for those who don't know, is one of the top 10 fossil fuel producers in the world. So while we're um, experiencing unprecedented climate, we're also experiencing lack of action and continued lack of action. And Jessica Chen Weiss, what should people interested in the future of China be looking for in the coming year? I think in the immediate term, the election in Taiwan and the outcome will be very significant. And how that election intersects with electoral politics in the United States, and particularly what kind of tough signaling the various candidates undertake on the campaign trail, I think will be significant. But equally significant, I think, will be to watch the quiet work that the Biden administration continues to do to make sure that the agreements reached in California continue to be implemented on fentanyl, military-to-military uh, -military relations. That kind of work will probably be done more quietly, given the electoral context, but I think is no less significant. That was Jessica Chen Weiss, the Michael J. Zak Professor for China and Asia-Pacific Studies in the Department of Government at Cornell University, Kareem El-Gendi of the Middle East Institute and Karbun, and Luke Harding, author of the 2022 book, Invasion, the inside story of Russia's bloody war and Ukraine's fight for survival. Great to have you with us. Such a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Happy New Year to you all. been listening to On Shifting Ground, produced in partnership with KQED, with funding from listeners like you. It was produced by Elise Minukian and Andrew Stelzer, with research support from Adam Ailey. It was mixed and mastered by Matteo Schimpf. Additional production and engineering were provided by Rob Spate. KQED's Jim Bennett is our technical supervisor. Jared Sport is our executive producer. Philip Yun is CEO of World Affairs. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening. <laughs>